Hi there, my name is Corey Johnston. And I'm Michelle Maunder. And you are listening to Spirited Conversations, engaging and elevating pediatric occupational therapists. A joint collaboration between SEED Pediatric Services and Developmental FX. Each week you'll hear from myself and Michelle as we nerd out with Tracy Stackhouse. Just a note before we start, Spirited Conversations is for informational purposes only. We're not intending to be a substitute for professional medical advice or therapeutic intervention. We urge you to seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health professionals with any questions you have regarding specific medical conditions. With that, let's jump into today's episode. Hello, welcome everybody. Episode three, um, we are hoping to be able to dive a little bit into praxis today after our discussion about posture um, last episode. We all just went, can we please talk about praxis? (laughs) Um, Welcome, Tracy. We love having you every week. So good to see you. So good to see you too, Michelle. Trace. Hi, Corey. (laughs) Um, I get to see these lovely ladies every week and I love it. So we're going to pull together... Well, I didn't do it. Michelle, you did all the work this time um, of pulling together a composite case so that we could talk about praxis in, a, I guess, a tangible way. Um, and hopefully that will give everyone who's listening a better sense of this concept, which I even now am still trying to wrap my head around the complexity of it because it is really complex. And I just wanted to drop a side note in. Michelle and I both brought our – Sensory Integration and the Child, Gina's original blue book today, <laughs> um, just in the spirit of wanting to feel connected to Dr. Ayres. So um, I just thought that was a fun little thing to add. <laughs> so in I'll hand over to you, Michelle. You go for it. <laughs> Thanks, Corey. So last week, last episode when we were talking about posture, the whole time this um, – a couple of kids kept coming to mind because they initially came to us and the biggest challenge was posture. They certainly had issues with praxis as well, but posture was where we needed to start. So as we progressed through treatment, as we discussed in the first episode, um, we have got uh, this little kiddo that I'll explain to a point where he's now actually got enough um, stability and bilateral coordination and um, interest in playing really physically that he's moving around um, lots more. So um, his postural challenges haven't resolved, but he's now really in the room and playing with objects with a vibrancy that he didn't have before because posture didn't really allow him to, so he's much more passive. Um, I can dive into this case a, um, a bit more in a minute, though, Tracy. Did you want to say anything about Praxis before we start to kind of intro the concept? Sure. So I think, you know, in the course of this podcast and, and for all of us as clinicians, one of the things that's so beautiful and interesting is how uh, these issues tend to connect to each other. And one of the journeys that we all have to go on to refine our treatment and to really deepen what we're offering is to disentangle those connected dots yes. and sort out the bits and the parts, basically, and then sort of put them back together. So this w- idea of integration 
requires us to be able to to look at that big picture. How is this child? What is his vibrancy? I love the description and I love the energy that you describe him using that that idea that this kiddo wants to play and he wants to engage and he wants to accomplish and achieve and 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 participate yeah. and do all yeah. of the things of childhood. And yet the things that are tricky for him, we can zoom into the bits and the parts. And so, you know, it's very common that we're going to dance across these topics and that kids don't just live in one concept or one area of difficulty. They um, often show us difficulties in a, in a way that integrates our thinking. Mm. And so this guy, you know, early on had some difficulties with posture and now you're seeing more difficulties around praxis. Mm. So when we say the word praxis in our sort of air sensory integrative frame of reference, um, praxis really is related to the capacity that all of us have to generate novel skillfulness um, it's, and, and so what is that? Like, you know, anything that we've never done before, whether that be kick a ball or, um, move against gravity or use our hands skillfully as tools or use our social selves in interaction smoothly, all of those things, the first time we do them are novel. Mm, and mm. that novelty requires so much neural resource to pull from every aspect of our sensory affect and motor processing mm. and our cognitive and language processing. Mm. And so when we have this concept of praxis, it's really big. Mm. So I think, you know, we'll put, and throughout this, um, this discussion together today, in a spirited way, we're going to kind of refer back to a visual that gives us a little bit of a roadmap around what is praxis and what are all the bits and parts of praxis. And we might not talk about all of the things that are on that visual map, but from an Ayers perspective, Dr. Ayers did two critical things. And then we're going to talk about the case, but I want to, I just want to highlight these two critical things. The first is that there's a sensory discrimination foundation to our ability to have praxis. And the second is that praxis kind of works in a process of ideation, planning, and execution. And then we monitor our performance across those different elements. So in the motor learning and dynamic systems theories, we use four parts ideation, planning, execution, and monitoring. And Dr. Ayers wrote about the three core parts of that. So, so we'll kind of they align, dance. Tracy. So those theories align somewhat, but they just have a fourth. Yeah. Yeah, they absolutely align. And those are the theories that we're going to draw yeah, from yes. for our evidence base that really creates the structure of how we might approach the intervention. Yeah. I'm getting really yeah. excited because both Michelle and I are, have signed up for a neurodevelopmental technique, like module one kind of, which is, you know, fun, but also um, pushing our knowledge around some new stuff. Um, but I bought the motor control textbook um, and have read chapter one. And so when you were talking about 
the dynamic systems model. I could now actually visually (laughs) see it in my mind. Whereas I know when you brought it up in the first episode, I think about how mostly we learned that at university and I was like, oh man, I did not learn that and (laughs) was like, couldn't conceive of the idea of what you were talking about. And so I was just like, oh, this is exciting. Yeah. (laughs) I'm getting it. (laughs) That's great. Cool. All right. Well, let's hear about this little um, wonder that you have in mind and kind of proceed from there. Because I think when we can picture it, Corey, whether we can picture the concept like a like the concept of dynamic systems or the concept of ideation, or if we can picture a child, that deepens our clinical reasoning because we we have to land this in what we know and what we can see and what we can touch and make tangible. And we hope this conversation does that for people, that it allows you just to question and wonder about, well, what is that? What is praxis? Mm. So, yeah, so let's learn about praxis from the lens of this kiddo. Yes. So this boy is, um, that I've put together is six years, nine months. He, I just get a smile and sit upright and get all giggly, even thinking about him. He's, um, just delightful. He's full of energy. He has a big smiley face. He is really clever. Um, and he's very social. He has lots of ideas. Um, and he's really eager to play. Um, initially, when I first started seeing him, um, he had a lot more rigidity and so that he was the classic, um, you know, uh, because he had postural challenges. So he would really sit and talk a lot and direct play and we need, and was, had some rigidity. So we, he wanted to have a plan and we'd sit and negotiate that mm. at the start. Um, at home, mum and dad, uh, delighting him in the same for the same reasons but also um these are my words not his uh, theirs say that he's kind of hard work um because he lacks organizational skills he doesn't really get himself together in the morning he's only six years but he isn't dressing um and cleaning his teeth and coming out to get his lunchbox for school Mm. um as They've got other children and so they kind of like, you know what, we have to coach him through each step of that early Mm. morning routine, which they thought um, they might not need to do um, anymore. He gets really rigid after school and so if there's a little change in um, activity, they've got to go and pick up something, he really uh, gets emotionally dysregulated and has a big kind of meltdown about that and just wants to go home. Um my wondering in part that he's tired and really had enough, but it also is this sense of um, rigidity and predictability that he clings on to, I guess. Mm. Um, he has siblings and so they um, – he's a source of quite a few fights because he has lots of ideas and lots of rules and he wants things his way and gets pretty frustrated Um and then kind of cries or wrecks the game if it doesn't go his way. I don't really see that in the clinic so much. So I guess that's my observations of a really vibrant boy. Um, So when I think about him in the clinic, I'll use your image of the praxis process to guide my thinking of his presentation in the clinic in much more detail, starting with ideation. 
as I mentioned, I think he looks much stronger in this area. I haven't done the string uh, test from Theresa May Benson, but he generates lots of ideas with little objects right through to um, ideas and schemas for play. Yeah. I see he's got great initiation. If anything, he's too fast. He's too on the ready to dive into things, and that's what I think causes errors. Uh, so it's having the idea but pausing before the motor action component. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure if the imitation sits in here, uh, but the simple test of gestural praxis, he's okay on that. He's lacking some precision um, in uh, the precise location of his body tied with, you know, the tactile probe systems as, as what I'm asking him to do increases in complexity. Uh, the second component is planning. I think he's really restricted in this sequencing component um, in planning right through from his movement actions through to the, you know, a number of tasks that make up a comple- complex activity such as getting re- dressed in the morning, which we can see in play but and at home, but we can also see in clinical observations such as a sequential finger touching, alternating forearm rotation, copying cla- clapping patterns, um, doing skipping, so he's really just not getting um, the sequence of yeah. the movements right, right through to adding the tasks um, into activities right. The third component uh, that we're looking at is execution. So metorically, this is really restricting him a lot as well. When I look at the clinical observations of tasks such as finger-to-nose, uh, finger, sequential finger-touching, um, as all, and also in play, so things like drumming um, and swinging, his timing and rhythmicity is really out. Uh, his movements are show much more ballistic and jerky rather than that smooth control of movements. He's also not grading force well either. He tends to be much too hard. Um, so adding that with the sequencing component, we're just seeing really ballistic um, movements that lack that precision fluidity. So he looks quite refined. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I think of body scheme and body awareness in space, it's improving, um, but it's still emerging when he moves to bigger spaces. So in the clinic, he uh, if we're in the, just a little um, section of the clinic, he looks quite contained and moves more precisely and is really aware of um, his body position uh, in relation to objects and me and within that space. But when we move to the whole gym space, uh, he loses that and he can bump into things and kind of stumble over mats um, and uh, other items there. With simple feedback, he's much better than complex feed forward required to do things like kicking a moving ball. His bilateral integration is really reduced with left-right not being discerned well or or working cooperatively well, but also his upper limb and lower limb. He's really dominant in the upper limb. So when we're doing things like running, walking up a ramp, for example, you're seeing him really trying to climb up the ramp with his upper limb without much flexion and activation through those feet and toes. So lastly uh, is monitoring. 
when he's doing more sedentary tasks and he's much more cognitive, then he presents um, with this as a real strength. I think he can problem solve quite well. Um, with my assistance, but when he's moving, so once he's in action, and I guess the um, which is in his strength, and the um, demands of the tasks is more complicated for him, more taxing for him. Uh, this monitoring aspect really regresses, yeah. and he just then is going with the flow. Well, not even going with the flow, but looking much more um, reactive to the environment rather than um, purposefully moving, you know, and completing a task and monitoring his progress in that task. He's got an adaptive strategy, though, of changing the rules. And so that is a source of great frustration for everybody because instead of monitoring and going back and improving and adjusting, he just makes the rules different to suit his new, you know, his not perfect um, action. So as I mentioned, I haven't conducted a formal assessment um, of him recently to gain more data. These are just my observations through play. Well, I was actually thinking, Michelle, because we I was thinking about this the other day actually, was sometimes um, I feel like if I'm in a session, I'm looking at a kid and I'm like, oh, that looks – something about that is 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 not coming, coming together. Like either it, and, and sometimes I'm not 100% sure how to pick out the piece that's not coming together. And because I do know that praxis falls into these three categories, mm. right, of, of the ideation part and then the actual plan that the – brain has to put together in the moment and then actually right before it happens and then execute that plan um and then of course in that dynamic system sphere theory evaluate whether it worked right so but sometimes when I'm looking at a kid in a session I'm not 100% sure how to figure out which element isn't coming together Mm. so and um that can be a little bit tricky so I, I had a genuine question around how like how do we best observe or even assess practice? If if you don't have the SIPT or if you're not SIPT trained, um, what are some really great ways we can start to even find out a bit about praxis for a child? Does that, I don't know, apart from being yeah, like they absolutely. look clumsy, <laughs> you know, because it's really yeah. broad. It is really broad, but it's interesting. Um, so I want to talk about the assessment, but I kind of want to talk about this word clumsy for a minute because – you know, before there was ever um, uh, a dyspraxia description from an heir's perspective, or even in the, um, the lens of coordination or a developmental coordination disorder, Dr. Gabay, who wrote way back in the 1960s, and um, he he talked about this thing called the clumsy child syndrome. And interestingly, you know, Dr. Ayers was able to really take that notion of seeing when kids were struggling with basic coordination and they looked like things that should come easily to them, things that should um, be smooth and accurate and fluid. When you are missing those qualities, that there's often an underlying reason that, that that's present. And so whenever you know, we hear about a child who has a struggle with coordination or clumsiness, it makes us wonder, like, why, what is that? What is that? Because really, 
on very many levels as human beings and as kind of animals on this planet, we're meant to be movers. Mm. We're meant to be smooth operators. And, and really efficient um, at be, that for our survival, Trace. Like we, if we were falling over when the lion was coming for us. <laughs> no, no, <Done> Michelle. <laughs> Goodbye, Michelle. <laughs> or distracted yeah. when the lion was coming. <laughs> That's exactly right. And then... Not only that, are we meant to be movers so that we're efficient and fluid in our environment, but so that we can creatively engage with the things that we encounter. Mm. If we come across something that's climbable, mm. we want to climb mm. it. If we come across something that is pickupable, yeah. we want to pick it up. If we come across something that's puttable or placeable, we want to make that and finesse that. And we're we're kind of driven to... Um, create and to use um, what we can do mm. with the thing that's out there to be operated on. Mm. And so there's this interaction that happens between our body and what we're capable of doing or the affordance we bring to that action. And then we interact with the bits out there in mm. the world, the environment out there. Um, because children that have sensory integrative processing issues struggle with anti-gravity control, with with those basic actions, like what is it to be a kicker mm. if it's hard for you to pick up one foot and move it in space separate from the other foot? Mm. Or what happens if you understand that throwing means from here to there, so you kind of get space, but but if that space is confusing to you, you might not organize it mm. well. You might not get that, um, you know, the ball is supposed to go up, but up means all the way to the stars instead <laughs> of just a little bit of up. Mm. So we start to see this lack of smoothness, this lack of grading, mm. this lack of control, that is often in the execution mm. part of, of that formula. But sometimes it's related back. And as you were talking about this little one, Michelle, you talked a lot about how he struggles with sequencing, mm. like in the morning with his dressing routine, yeah. for instance. Um, so sequencing is part of planning. Mm. And a lot of times when we see kids who have these difficulties, we're going to see it break down in sequencing. Mm, okay. So really, Can I the jump assessment... In, Trace? So yes, please. If, so there's a relationship between sequencing. Um, uh, I think Theresa May Benson has this in a text of hers, the sequencing of even neurons to muscles to tasks to, you know, across all of the day. So I can relate or we can relate, listeners can relate, um, difficulty organizing or sequencing um, tasks like getting dressed in the morning may have a relationship to him sequencing, um, throwing of the ball, uh, watching it and then kicking it, for example, in the kicking thing so that it might extend beyond just muscles, tasks, activities um, across his day. Right. So I think I got a little bit lost there. So were you saying Theresa May Benson is linking a neural process of how the message gets sent to from the brain to the muscle to then activate, like the sequence of one neuron to the next to the muscle to the muscle activating? Do you mean that process to then yeah. make the muscle move 
is a se- is a neural process of sequencing, and then that relates to the ability to actually sequence actions in the right mm. order, mm. as in actions of my body. So if I go to walk, I can't put both feet forward at the same time. Like yeah. I have to sequence one foot and then the other. Foot. I know walking is much more automatic function, but even but, if yeah. I go to pick up a cup, like I have to activate certain things before I activate others otherwise I'm not gonna I'm gonna miss the cup or I'm gonna fall over before I even get to reach the cup or and then when you can do that yeah so then if I can sequence sequence my body in those those little actions then I can start to sequence bigger complex more complex plans or like even across time is that what you mean like as in now I can sequence my I need to get dressed before I go out to the kitchen okay cool yeah that is so spot on So, you know, let's go back and talk a little bit about the assessment bit. Um, There are standardized assessments that we can look at to um, ascertain the qualities of praxis in that process in ideation, planning, execution. But there are also, there's always an invitation to do clinical observations of that and to listen to stories from parents to inquire about daily life function related to each of those elements. And really at the end of the day, clinical reasoning is critically important because any assessment that you do, the numbers are not going to tell you exactly what's going on in terms of the underlying integrative process that always takes your skillful observation and your ability to um, interpret the information back and to use the theory to help you make that interpretation and then to create the treatment plan. So when we're looking at, at praxis just from a, you know, assessment perspective, we, we do want to discern ideational skills. Teresa May Benson, who we mentioned earlier, she has you know, a couple of tools that we can use to look at ideation. The things with string task is the one that I probably use the most, but um, there are other tests like that in neuropsychology literature as well, um, generativity tasks and a number of other things. The The base of that, though, is really understanding affordances. Mm. And we could just do like, you know, I don't know if we will do a whole episode on, on affordances, oh, yes, but it's please. a really <laughs> amazing topic for us to dive into. Um and so we want to understand the affordances, uh, you know, of the child's system and how they interact mm. with objects out in the world. And so that's going to come really from observation. We want to understand how they generate ideas, how they select schemas, how they match that to the context around them. So ideation itself is pretty complicated. Mm. And then we move into that that planning bit, the sequencing bit. And when we were just talking about sequencing, you know, there is a truth to um, the neural process of sequencing and the daily process of sequencing and that there's a relationship between them, but it isn't really a causal relationship. So when a child is struggling with sequencing, like finger-thumb touching, for instance, um, touch your index finger, touch your middle finger. That that's a, an underlying sequential process that's cerebellar in nature. Um, that is really based in somatosensory awareness, our body awareness, that body schema, that clear 
body map mm-hmm. that gives you precision. And that's the sensory discrimination underpinning. So if we watch something like finger, you know, thumb finger touching tasks, we're getting both the quality and rhythmicity and timing. Those are motor execution parts. Mm-hmm. But we can also observe that sensory discrimination underpinning of awareness and grading and precision. Mm. So those are things that you're always going to be both observing for a formal assessment and evaluation, but ongoing in every session, Mm. you really have to make those observations to fine tune what is it that the child's struggling with and why is that so hard for them? So you're going to be looking at those motor planning you know, sequential schema selection, how they transition from through the sequence, through the flow, Mm. and then into the the grading and timing and execution. Mm. And then what happens when they make a mistake? Um, Lots of times when our kids are not very coordinated, they, they make a lot of kind of little errors in their actions, and sometimes they're not even aware of it. Yeah. They, you know, kick the ball <laughs> too hard or too far or too soft, and they don't really even know that that's an error or how to correct it. So your observation and your formal assessment are always partners in mm-hmm. trying to sort out what's going on and then trying to tie it back to that sensory processing underpinning, which in most most cases for a child with dyspraxia, it's related back to that sensory discrimination. Mm-hmm. So having said all of that, Michelle, what does that bring up for you in terms of both what you know about this little one from your assessment and then also your clinical questions about about treatment and what you do next? Yeah. Look, it brings up heaps. And I guess... Um, at the moment, while he has made some great gains, um, he still does present with um, sensory processing difficulties, specifically proprioceptive um, vestibular uh, and the tactile. Uh, interestingly, when I did clinical observations, um, his eye function, um, visual function, it was his convergence and divergence that was most affected. He did have some skipping over the midline um, three out of ten times, for example. So we certainly saw some, you know, issues crossing midline, um, uh, which uh, – but it was, I think, the convergence, divergence that is impacting his spatial awareness, his ability to kind of look close and then, you know, zoom back out to see the bigger world. So that spatially is where he's at. So um, definitely there's still some process, uh, sensory processing challenges. Um, um, what I'm also seeing is this pattern um of um, lots of ideas with a lot of not a not a lot of monitoring, and I um he's an energetic boy um so I look I've got some questions about his attention and I guess inhibition as well, so that when he has an idea, um uh, he instead of really working hard to make it succeed, he flips on to the next one. So while generating all those ideas is a real strength for him, particularly when he wasn't moving around so much, um, uh, it it, it is actually restricting him now because you don't see him keep sticking at something and, and, you know, trying to improve that. Um, uh, 
um, as readily as he does other things on his own. Does that come back to that post? So I'm just wondering about, you know, because you were saying when he's sitting, seems to be more generative in terms of ideas. Yeah. But once he's up and moving, he's um, like then a lot more impulsive looking. Yeah. Does, does, I mean, I, I we definitely talked about posture, but does that sort of, do you feel like that comes back to some of that postural stability? Well, I think it's in part all of it. It's the postural stability. It's the spatial um, yes, component okay. to it. I think um, – so this one little example is that um, we have done lots of work um, with uh, vestib import um, to improve – posture. Uh, so he's used to swings and he can now pump a swing on his own. And we've done lots of, you know, a smaller glider, a larger platform swing, a very big, um, what do you Balls? call that? Oh, glider, I guess. It's a uh, big glider swing. Yeah, it's like a so one. he can now um, manage all of those swings and I can make challenges up where he has to stand on it and go sideways, for example. So I think when he's with the, um, he's got a little bit of constraint so that we're working with swings or we're working with an obstacle course. He's got some containment and he looks better. Um, the, there was a, a time where we were doing some, um, a ball was in the room and he just happened to, um, I roll it to him and he jumped it and then he, well, he tried to jump it and then he decided to kick it. And then, you know, within moments <laughs> he had it in the air and then he was trying to kick it. And then at one stage he looked like he was trying to kick it with two feet <laughs> and then it went near the wall and it bounced up the ramp. So then he ran up the ramp trying to kick it up the ramp. And so it was just this, uh, I just was watching because lots of things, which I guess is the crux of the questions I want to ask you, Tracy, is that, he was so joyful. He was internally motivated. Um, it looked like it was the first time he was exploring an object with his feet or the ball with his feet. And he was running through all of the opportunities. Um, and he just was like a kid in a candy store, really. <laughs> like, oh my God, I could do this. Oh, there's a ramp and I could do that. And I could do this. None of them from my perspective was successful. He didn't <laughs> land. And so I was like, hey, what, what are you doing there? With your knee and-, and he really did two things. Didn't engage with me, which he's so social and usually he wants me to be his play partner. So he's really truly in his own little world. And he he wasn't doing it to master. So in some aspects, it was just joyful, explorative play. And I guess my questions, um, the clinical questions are, Tracy, is, yes, I need to keep working on his sensory processing, those specific components of it. Um, I guess looking at a dynamic uh, motor theory is looking at the need for repetition um, and then some variation. And then I guess the other theory that we work with with children is looking at play and, and you know, as is um, internal motivation and the just right challenge and, you know, is me. It adaptive though, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I guess that's my wondering because at the moment it's not adaptive, but yeah. it, is he at that really early stages of having found some posture and, and enough um, uh, spatial awareness, enough body scheme um, that he now picks up a ball and is he in this joyful, really emergent stage of, ah, I could do all of these things. And in my mind, there's no mastery, but he's that yet to come and that this is just 
joyful exploration. Or do we have to be really mindful as, as the therapist to figure out how we're going to create that refinement mastery if it continues to look like super clumsy or, you know, then it's like, okay, how how do I get that to be looking more efficient, more adaptive? So that without that, getting too cognitive exactly, to be like, hey, exactly. if you want to play ball, let's Step play soccer. You do and this, and it. first let's start with I roll you the ball, yeah. and you stop it with yeah. your foot, like yeah. that boring. Yeah, yeah, he won't. He, won't <laughs> he didn't want to. He actually no. ignored me when I did suggest that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I go too cognitive a lot of the time. Anyway, when I'm trying to do practice, and I'm, you know, I'm like, get in the middle of the swing, and I'm tapping the middle of the swing. <laughs> and they don't know where the middle of the swing is. And I'm what like, is the middle? Corey? Put your head here and put your feet there. And I'm like, oh man, there's. I probably should be doing something else, <laughs> you know. But sometimes you catch yourself and going, oh gosh, they just they don't have the underlying mm-hmm. concept of the middle. <laughs> yeah, like. You know, manage to just peel it back. (laughs) So I've got heaps of, you know, more um, specific clean obs um, trays. But Mm -hmm. anyway, what do you think? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, so I love the way that you're um, describing his attempts at playfulness and how asynchronous development is, right? Especially with our kids that have struggled with their development. So if this little boy was not six years old, let's say that um, he's 16 months old and his play would have looked joyful and robust and so interesting to us. Like, look what he's doing. (laughs) He's kicking the ball. He's slinging the ball. He's putting it up. He's putting it down. And that early based play is so clever. But by the time you're six, we think about how all of that should be being strung together Mm. into logical sequences that turn into something more. But the journey to get there is that you joyfully explore. Mm. So is that where he's at? He's at that level of development that he's got stability and he's got some mobility and now I'm joyfully exploring. Totally. And then, you know, through um, imitation is such an underpinning for praxis, but kids don't want to imitate if they're exploring their own Mm. ideas and their own affordances Mm. and their own interactions with object. And so when we try to put too many constraints Mm. on that, we can, we can take away the joyfulness. And yet, what you want is to scaffold mm. some level of sequence that makes interesting sense to him. Mm. So, you know, in a session that is unbounded, let me kick it here and kick it there and kick it everywhere. <laughs> when he starts to show curiosity, like, how do I make that happen again? Mm. Or how do I get more precise? Mm. Or how do I make that be about a you and a me game instead of a just a me game? Then you start to build towards something. Mm. But if you impose it, you tip the balance of playfulness Mm. away from him and toward you. And then that sort of doesn't allow him to continue to be an agent in that experience. So it's really a balance. And intuitively, I really haven't ever seen him play like that before individually without me. Like everything has been pretty um, planned and with me and, Mm. you know, let's do this together and then I'll, you know, interrupt that and help him be flexible. (laughs) You know, so this um, has just caught me and stayed with me because it was like he was playing differently for the first time. 
Yeah, I love that. So, you know, the thing that's interesting is that each of the elements of praxis in and of themselves have a developmental story to them. And that's why it's so complicated to treat because you have to really observe on all those levels. Mm -hmm. And you do want to allow him to explore and play. Mm. And you also know that with just a tiny bit more precision or just a tiny bit more goal directedness, Mm. that maybe that would sync up a little bit more quickly for him. And so you're going to be infusing that, um, you know, that guidance Mm. for him but not imposing Mm. it. So it's kind of that, it's really a fine line. Mm. And I think it's really fun for us to try to talk about it. And also hard to define. I want to dive in. I know that he needs more precision in um, vestibular system, proprioceptive system, tactile, and, and probably visual as well. So I absolutely know I need to keep going there. Um, um, so will that, and I do need to look at the monitoring and problem solving and, you know, that component. But if, um, and then if I work on them during play, I guess, and then, um, bring it together in a game that he's interested in, which at the moment is the ball, and then try to still allow him to joyfully play with the ball. So I'm not going to make soccer the game, but, you know, just, is the key was the key point the curiosity opening the window of curiosity for him of oh how could I actually get this to go up there rather than just kicking the ball over is mm. was that the key point that when that that is that when you start to embed the 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 more goal directedness mm. or the more like was that the key point was that because I'm trying to distinguish between in my head when I'm observing a child, I'm trying to distinguish between is this playful exploration and I can just let this unfold because it hasn't happened Mm. before. And wow, like this looks really funky for a six year old, but this would look great for an 18 month old. Mm. And this is where he's at. Yeah. This is where you're at. But now I need that cue for me as a therapist to go, when can I now go, Oh, you're opening this up now for me to be able to help refine this. And it's it sounded like it was the window of like more planfulness around yeah. it. Okay, now I actually – because it sounds like he didn't have a plan at all. It was no, just like didn't. kick the ball, blah, 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 you know, whatever. So as soon and as he wanted to actually – And I actually don't even know that he had a plan going in that each time the ball moved in a different way, he had a new idea. Yeah. And that's his asset, but I think that's what's tricky for him yeah. because the plan kept changing. Yeah. And, and um, because he's not fully – in his body yet from a proprioceptive perspective and probably tactilely and he's not in the room fully from yeah. a spa- visual spatial perspective i think it was a it wasn't reactive but he was behind the eight ball it wasn't a f- true feed yes. forward yeah, yeah, yeah. um that's exactly right so he's kind of behind the eight ball because he doesn't quite have capacity to offer yeah. back to the play a little higher level skill. And so it happens at this lower level because that's kind of where he's cooking. Mm. But what's interesting is um, he's he's so keen to play and kids like this will be so eager to play mm. that what you're looking for is 
when he wants to repeat something with a little bit mm. more, like, I want to do that again, or I want to refine that a little bit, that that's really your window your in. And you can, you can start to um, then model and demonstrate and build through imitation yeah. for him. Oh, when you kick it up there and then it falls down here, watch what happens next. Mm. And then you can kind of woo him into creating a little sequence. Mm. And then the sequence, when it, when he wants to repeat it, instead of just randomly be pell-mell and do whatever, then you're going to start to be able to build something. Mm. But you can't really force that. I mean, you can train it if you decide to take that treatment approach. It doesn't generalize well. Um, And so I wouldn't necessarily encourage that. But there's a pull we have, like, come on, just put it in the bucket or put it up here or make the target Mm. or do the soccer or whatever. But allowing for play and then looking for refining around the discrimination elements Mm. that support it really and and letting him be that agent of his Mm. own change is really powerful. And it's also requires us to trust our theories so very much. I love that, Tracy, and I I genuinely do find the theories behind these concepts just incredibly helpful because they can help you make hypothesis uh, hypotheses about what might be going on and go about testing that and trying to figure out how to treat it. But sometimes you'll have the theory and you'll sort of be aware of the concepts, but you're still struggling to translate that into what do I do in this moment in in my treatment session, like how do I then pull that into a operable thing that I can use to help shift the function? So, I mean, I don't know what you guys think about how you go about even just starting to think about treating practice. practice. Yeah. Like, do you guys have any thoughts about which way you start doing that? Yeah. So from an heirs perspective and really neurologically from a dynamic systems perspective, you, you know, you can start in, in the direction of the base of the sensory motor functions, or you can start in the direction of the end point, Mm. which is more the playfulness and his zesty Mm. sense of exuberant stuff that he brings Mm. to the world. Um, And really you're going to be working in both directions. Mm. And so in your treatment planning, uh, we do want to bring about that discriminative precision. We know that that's going to synchronize things for him and, and sync it up and that that's a missing element. So anywhere we get a chance to start to infuse some of that, but again, without taking away from his playfulness. So it's, it's really a fine balance in, in terms of that. And then Michelle, you really, you know, uh, observed in him that it is across these basic sensory Mm. systems that he is missing Mm. some of the foundational bits. And so you're going to have to continue Mm. to work on infusing opportunities to refine vestibular processing, refine the bilaterality, Mm. even though it's gotten better, it's still not where it needs to be. And, you know, in the recent sensory integration theory and praxis textbook, they talk a lot about how the somatosensory system and the bilateral systems are sort of continuous mm. in terms of their support of the praxis function. And this little guy is really demonstrating that mm. to us. 
So we really want to think about bilaterality and the vestibular base. We want to think about the body ba- the body awareness mm-hmm. and body schema, refining his control around mm-hmm. that, his, uh, his basic awareness of space and timing. Mm-hmm. So those are things that, you know, theoretically are rich. I think in the treatment session, what I like to do is just really be present with mm-hmm. the child and let them play and see what they're doing and then try to bring in those bits to mm-hmm. it. But not in a forced way, mm. in a partnered, playful way. Mm. Um, and so I think that's what you both do so exquisitely anyway. Oh, and it's guy. always the journey <laughs> that we're on is to build our playfulness and in the present moment. And, and really what's so tricky about these complicated, beautiful kids we treat is the clinical reasoning is so heady, mm. but the treatment requires us to be present. Mm, yeah. And so you're always having to kind of maybe do that thinking um, not so much in the moment um, and just be present with mm-hmm. them and see what you can add and then think later, mm, how could I have made that a little bit more proprioceptive? Mm-hmm. How could I add in a more discriminative element in terms of space? Mm-hmm. So maybe we take, you know, visual cues mm-hmm. like pool noodles and put them at spots mm-hmm. so that he's starting to target or aim, but not requiring that, but just giving boundaries and, and configuration and yeah. detail for him to pick up Just on. like amping it up um, a bit. Well, yeah. yeah. Highlighting it. Instead Absolutely. of like making it a requirement, but being like, oh, there's something over there. Let's see if we could hit yeah. that or, and, and drive and pull him into that drive to want to then try that too. Or, and as long as I genuinely delight in yes. that, he's so ready to play <laughs> that it's like, oh yeah, great idea, yeah. Michelle. Why do you not think of that? <laughs> when you're like, t- oh, talking yeah. about that clinical reasoning part being quite heady, like get in your head, I, I, it made me flash back to when I was first learning the DIR model and 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 my final case vignette presenting this graph of like my skill and not knowing much and feeling like I was much in much more able to get a flow and then learning more and feeling like my flow dropped way down because I was thinking so much about all the concepts and then finally letting it settle in and feeling like I could pick back up into being able to get this flow again. Mm. So it felt like yeah. you know, learning a new concept sometimes interrupted my ability to be present and have a flow because I was thinking so much. Then sometimes once I then let that integrate into my own knowledge, Mm. then I can then go back to being able to say present and pull things in, in the moment. So it just made me think of that, that process. Totally. And what's, What's so true is that that's development for us, yes. like that happens for us. And the same thing is happening for the kids in this session, right? Yeah. So if you, if you push too hard in any one direction, you're going to get them to feel a little like they're taxed and that this, I'm losing my play and I'm losing my, my zhuzh here. Um, and so the, and that, that happens. Okay. That's all right. And then we come back and we were fine yeah. and all of that. So anyway, what an interesting way for us to jump into talking about praxis. Yeah. I think that air theory is so rich and the primary source mm, to draw yeah. from for this. Um, and really, even though there are, um, 
you know, some top-down treatment approaches that we didn't talk about at all mm-hmm. in this yeah. particular episode that people sometimes approach um, praxis from. Really, there is such a good evidence base for using an heirs approach, and her model beautifully fits um, the developmental needs of this yeah. this little person you've talked to us about today, Michelle. So, I really um, think that study of of the the core theory of air mm-hmm. sensory integration. Yeah. It's just fuel yeah. for us as pediatric it, OTs. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I know it is for you guys yeah. too. Look, it absolutely is. And it fits, um, intuitively from where he's at in this emerging play skills as well. And the idea of following the child's lead and him being really active, um, and, you know, not, not passively sitting down and talking down the plan that he's actively engaged in it. And that I just need to playfully set that up, you know, think really Ooh. hard out of session, <laughs> but construct, you know, some more, um, uh, boundaries, I guess, not boundaries. Amplify, right amplify, yeah, amplify pieces just, of it so yeah. that you can be more playful. Yeah. And then kind of let it roll on at the time really playfully. And you do um, a good job of that anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just helpful to refine it. And, and I think, Tracy, I mean, I've heard you talk about the top down, approaches to practice a lot and and they're fantastic when they're ready to be when you yeah. need to, when you need them they're wonderful you know it's i guess what you were saying before it's like it's it makes sense to me that you would use a combination of things because mm. the brain is so complex you would never just use one you would never just use top down in terms of mm. the because the brain is mm-hmm. not just a mm. just a cortex. <laughs> yes. So I guess you know you would pull all the pieces together and try to get the brain to integrate. And for my, my <laughs> little kiddo, that's where he's been living already in his yes. cortex. You know, he's thought he's he's had to think play where yes. now it's like his body's doing it and yeah. he is joy really truly yeah. joyful in the action the motor execution of it, even though it's clunky. So it just intuitively feels like it will help him and I need to get to it, but it's not where I want to start with him quite at the moment. Um, Awesome, awesome. So did we want to um, encourage listeners to have a think about uh, practice? Yeah, Yeah. I just think, yeah, that if you start to think about the concepts, because I didn't personally, Tracy, know anything about Dr. Ayers' model of praxis until I met you. I only knew about co-op or um, some of the top-down queuing models for helping kids learn learn mm-hmm. a skill. So even if people are just introduced to the possibility that there is multiple ways of looking at this and it's complex and that you don't mm-hmm. – you can have, I guess, ways of treating it that aren't just cognitive-based and you can use multiple ways of getting at this, then that mm-hmm. I would encourage them That's- to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And when this little guy says, you know, to you through his affect, through his words, through his action, I want to do that again. And he identifies the goal and he, you know, is more and is more purposeful about that. Then you can do goal plan, do review with him. You can say, Mm -hmm. you want to kick it up there? Really? Hmm, Let's try it. What happens? Mm -hmm. And you can start to infuse that. And Dr. Ayers did that in her treatment all the time. But if he doesn't have the playfulness and the somatosensory mm. awareness and the 
um, discriminative ability mm. to even be able to begin, mm. then that doesn't really help him to solidify this yes, skill yeah. in the long mm. term. So integration is always about both. Mm. And our journey is always about both, but it's that fine tuning of of the when. And, you know, the way we get there is through these kinds of conversations mm. with ourselves, with our colleagues, because it isn't just straightforward and there isn't a formula or a recipe. Um, the evidence base is rich and strong and clear, but it isn't formulaic. Mm. And that I think is one of the things that makes it amazing and also really challenging for us as the professionals. Mm. Um, but we can clearly identify it, assess it, create a clear treatment plan and march kids forward over and over and over again because these theories really work. So what a cool thing. Um, and we'll, we'll provide some really wonderful resources in the show notes, some readings and some direction to go um, and hope that the Praxis Fire kind of gets caught um, by some of the listeners because it's a really powerful topic and a, a life-changing topic for, for kids all over the world. Right, so we'll share our key takeaways now. Um, I guess mine was, uh, is feeling really comfortable that I can continue to, um, work from watching, um, from as, uh, um, constructive watch following the child's lead and really allowing um, this little kiddo continue to play and explore and just being on the ready, having all of this, um, the process, the theory in the ready. So when I receive the invitation, um, then I'm ready to kind of add uh, elements to this to support his monitoring, to support, you know, his posture, his spatial awareness, all those elements that are weaker for him um, in just the right way that allows him to look for and feel more masterful with the activity that he's choosing. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful takeaway. That's I, I like that one. I think I personally... I guess the big thing that I thought about for me in this discussion was the fact that I hadn't been exposed to this theory or this way of potentially viewing this construct of praxis and treating it um, in a different way from the strategies that I had been using until I met Tracy. And so I would encourage people to think about who they can go to to have these conversations about praxis and where they can try and start integrating some of this information into what they're already doing and start to just start to understand what the possibilities are in this way of treating. So go and find people that you, if you can go and find people you can have these conversations about praxis with. What about you, Trace? Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I think for me, a takeaway, and, and maybe it's in different words than what we said actually earlier in the episode, but, um, you know, children who struggle with coordination, clumsy, you know, kids who have a clumsy profile, they don't outgrow it. Mm -hmm. uh, and they really can have an easier, more playful, more engaged level of participation in every part of their life with the right support. Mm -hmm. And they really... We know exactly what to mm. do. Our treatment is gorgeous and fun and really effective. Mm. And the process of OT is just so powerful for these kids. And I think having more kids who struggle with clumsiness, being able to access their um, 
you know, this kind of support and this kind of intervention is so critical and just, wow, it can, it can change things for, for any of those kids that are struggling. So I, I just, I hope it, it helps more kids find the care that they need. Well, thank you everybody for listening to our third episode. Um, And hopefully we'll see you all next time. Great. See you everyone. See you Tracy. Bye. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Seed Paediatric Services and Developmental FX, produced by Little Image Co. For more information, please go to our show notes on our website, spiritedconversationspodcast.com, or catch us at our Seed and Developmental FX Facebook or Insta pages. So grateful to have you with us today for this episode. Take care and we'll see you next time.